0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Alex McInturf, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He joined me to talk about fences and in particular, fence ecology. I'll let him explain. Dr. McInturf, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much, James, for having me here. (laughs)
0: Okay, so we're going to be talking about fences, and um, you know they've been studied to some extent, uh, but there isn't necessarily the same uh, sorts of broad consensus on their impacts on wildlife, et cetera, uh, as there have been for other landscape features. And I'm just wondering, kind of, you know, what contributes to that? I think our listeners will have heard about you know roads and their effects on wildlife movement and and those sorts of things. Um, but what makes fences different or more challenging?
1: You know, it's a great question, and. Um, In in some senses, fences have received a lot of studies. We reviewed 446 studies in our review. Um, But in another sense, as you mentioned, there hasn't been a big consensus or a set of broad lessons that have connected the dots between all of these diverse and somewhat siloed studies. Um, And it's good that you mentioned roads because um, we thought a lot about roads in putting this research together. And roads were in a really similar position in the 1990s. Back then, Um, Roads were so ubiquitous much of the world's population probably saw or spent time on a road on any given day Uh, and yet they were so common that they almost drifted into the backdrop until the late 1990s when a body of research came together and uh, started examining the ecological effects of roads and started pulling all of those diverse studies together into um, a bigger set of broader lessons about roads and what this research found was that the effects of roads are much, much bigger than their actual footprint on the landscape, and that they have a broad suite of effects at multiple scales uh, and of multiple kinds that were really not being revealed by any individual study. Um, and that body of research became a discipline called, fen- uh, excuse me, called road ecology. And so um, we were sort of inspired by that to take fences from this Uh, Part of the backdrop, part of the landscape that's so ubiquitous, you almost don't even see it and say, okay, what do we actually know? What are the broader lessons from looking at all this literature together? Um, And what are fences actually doing um, to the world that we live in?
0: Okay. And I guess that raises the obvious question then of what kinds of things are fences doing to the world that we live in? And, you know, also to some extent, what kind of fences are they, you know, are, are we talking about, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a wire with some pickets every three feet, or are we talking about, you know, a, a highly built 12 foot tall, you know, chain link type of fence, uh, you know, kind of, how does all that come into play? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, probably what receives the most attention to uh, someone who's not like me studying fences out there are border fences. We hear a lot about those in the news. They're um, rapidly expanding around the world. Um, And yeah, they can be really elaborate constructions, but um, they represent a really small fraction of the fences in the world. And the same is true of conservation fences, which are another kind of well known type of fence. So probably the most abundant type of fence in the world is a livestock fence. And a livestock fence is typically just a few wires strung between posts. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, um, the uh, elaborateness of a fence can range from that all the way up to some of these towering, imposing border structures that you see in the news. Um, I think a, a key distinction is, you know, we, we did try to draw boundaries around what we were studying and say, uh, well, we're not talking about walls. We're not talking about Medieval hahas were um, looking at structures with kind of intermittent structural posts and, uh, and uh, uh, kind of wires or uh, semi transparent or permeable structures stretching between them.
0: That makes sense. And I have to ask, what's a medieval haha? <laughs>
1: That's great. Yeah. We, get, we, get, we had a lot of fun kind of looking up what the uh, not quite fences of the world were. And so it's, it's sort of like a, a ditch. That was used as a defensive structure in medieval times but it's got a great name so.
0: okay thank you yeah that was an, an absolutely necessary aside i had to know that before <laughs> we could possibly move on um so you know what sort of a, a broad effects of fences are you seeing then you know um just to characterize those and then to, to talk about what more broadly based lessons we can learn from them but what sorts of things do we typically see
1: yeah that's a great question and um the way this question is often posed to me is, you know, what are the good fences and what are the bad fences? And what we found is that that's actually not a great way to think about the ecological effects of fences. And instead, the the biggest finding that we uh, that we offer in our research is that every fence creates a set of winners and losers, ecologically speaking. Um, so there's no good or bad fences, but they all create winners and losers. Um, and When we looked through the literature, we found some broad patterns in terms of what kinds of species and ecosystems tend to be winners and what kind tend to be losers. Um, We found that generalist species, disturbance-loving species uh, are often winners, whereas more specialized um, species and ecosystems tend to be losers. And, you know, unfortunately, that's consistent with the effects of a lot of types of infrastructure in the world. So fences are kind of adding to this pattern uh, of filtering that's already happening from a lot of types of infrastructure. Um, But um, when we kind of look at this more broadly, what we find is that fences tend to create more losers than winners. And so what that means is that as fences become more dense or as they they begin to proliferate rapidly, you kind of get what we've termed ecological no man's lands where um, because there's more and more losers than winners, uh, fences create ecosystems where only a narrow range of traits or ecosystem characteristics can survive and thrive, uh, and a lot of others are pushed out. And there's mounting evidence that at high enough densities, uh, with enough fences proliferating rapidly enough, this can actually lead to meltdown or collapse of whole ecosystems.
0: So it's a case in which you, know, you have fences that are excluding the enough specialist species that just a matter of the density is high enough, that you no longer have the sort of assemblages that you would want to see in a healthy ecosystem.
1: Yeah, for the case of, you know, total ecological collapse or meltdown, that's true. But even in areas where fences aren't dense, you still get this pattern of fences generating winners and losers. And that reorganizes ecosystems, even if it doesn't cause them to collapse.
0: Let's you know, drill down and, and maybe just take an example of, say, you know, out west, a wildlife fence, um, for example. What, what kind of species can get past the fence? What kind of species can't get past the fence? And, you know, what happens to an, an example? It can be made up ecosystem somewhere out there on the range. Sure. Well, I'm going to take
1: a little time to answer this question because um, there's another important part of our study that I want to mention in answering it. And that is um, that there's been a, a big bias in the literature on fencing. that that looks at how they affect animals in particular and how they uh, affect animal movement even more specifically. That's been a huge bulk of the number of studies on fencing. And so what we found was that um, when we took a broader look, fences actually affect multiple other scales of ecological pattern and process. So from really uh, kind of tiny scales, like affecting the way in which spiders build their webs, creating habitat for generalist bird species, all the way up to these kind of continental processes. Uh, if you look at the dingo fences in Australia, which are arguably the longest man-made structures in the world, um, there's evidence that they are initiating trophic cascades and other kinds of uh, ecological um, processes that are changing ecology at a continental scale. Um, so yeah, I can give you some examples of of um, specific species or movement, but I think it's also important to point out that um, this is a kind of multi-scalar uh, and multifaceted set of processes that, uh, that we're talking about here. So, um, you know, maybe sticking with Australia for, for an example, um, Australia is kind of famous in the fencing world for erecting fences that keep invasive species from invading. And We know that a lot of invasive species are successful Uh, because they are these generalist species or disturbance-loving species. So uh, we found a particularly ironic case where um, cane toads, one of these famous invaders of Australia, are actually using cleared fence lines as a kind of highway to facilitate their invasion. Um, Elsewhere in Australia, fences that were set up to be conservation fences. um, We actually found some examples in which they were having um, really devastating effects on the species that they weren't designed to protect. And in particular, uh, reptiles seem to have it bad around the world, probably because you know they either have to crawl under or crawl over fences, and thus they're more prone to get um, entangled or um, electrified if it's an electric fence. Um, so those are just some examples of how, uh, yeah, even good fences can produce losers and, and sometimes fences uh, have ironic consequences uh, tend to favor invasive species.
0: So that's a case in which, you know, you've built this fence very specifically to perform an ecological good, as one might say, uh, and you wind up having all these perverse outcomes. Is there a way to figure out if they're worth it? Or, you know, is it just you kind of have to look at everything and try to come to a conclusion?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think it kind of gets back to our point that um, it's it's hard to say, or it's hard to classify a fence as exclusively good or exclusively bad. Fences are uh, often a management tool that land managers use. And um, and so by nature, they kind of have to have targets or goals. Um, and so what, what, what one of the findings of our research is, is that um, there's been a fair amount of studies that have looked at the effects of fences on target species, but there's been a much, much fewer number of studies that have looked at their effects on non-target species. And so even those you know, quote unquote good fences may have a, a, a number of ecological effects that we don't understand because they're um, affecting species that aren't the targets of management. Um, but getting to the other part of your question, you know, I think when we start to think about fence policy, there's, there's two things to think about. Um, the first is that we need a lot more research. And that's one of the things that our paper calls for. Um, but we also know enough now to start taking policy action. Um, and we have some recommendations for policy in, in our paper, but any kind of policy would have to be context specific, and work with some of the frameworks that we provided to think about fences in their ecological context, the multiple scales at which they work, uh, and what what interventions might be available.
0: What kinds of things are policy or fence related policies not taking into account right now that they should, Um, you know, what sorts of things should feed into the decision of, you know, whether you erect or take down a fence Um, where, where are policymakers uh, being inadequately informed at this point?
1: You know, if, if there were a kind of broad set of fence policies, I think that would be a good start, but often there just really aren't, um, ones at all about them but um, that's starting to change and that's really good and so we have some positive examples that we can look at so um, one really maybe low-hanging fruit in the policy world would be to look at the way that fences are designed Um, we can take that big body of literature on the movement of animals and the effects that fences have on that movement Uh, and think about how to design wildlife friendly fences. This is something that I know is becoming popular in places like Wyoming um, and other areas in the Rocky Mountains where um, there's a lot of migratory species. And uh, managers and researchers there have found that really subtle design changes to fences can actually really positively benefit uh, animals and allow them to to cross the fences more easily without any big costs to uh, the utility that fences are serving. Um, so that's one, and then um, I think we can think about bigger scale. The way fences are aligned, starting to to plot them along natural transitions or boundaries in the landscape, as opposed to kind of putting them up where it's where it's more economically or logistically convenient, um, is another. But then, you know, as we talked about in our paper, there are some bigger, um, bigger policy actions that I think could be really powerful that are that are um, a little bit more challenging, which involve pulling fences down or deciding not to build them in the first place. And, and we can talk about what that would look like.
0: And what would that look like? You know, what what's the process like right now? And, you know, what should the process look like? Is, is there any kind of, you know, environmental impact being evaluated before your average fence is put up? Or is it, you know, simply at the landowner's prerogative?
1: Yeah, it really depends where you are in the world. Um, I think it differs a lot in, in different um, countries and regions, um, but I'd say one Really important consideration is that um, we we touch on this in our paper, but we don't go into depth that a huge missing piece of a future discipline of fence ecology right now is understanding the kind of sociological, economic and political entanglements that fences are involved with. Fences are are, are an economic reality and necessity for a lot of different people and industries. And so um, we have any policy that addresses them is gonna have to engage with that in a a deep way. Um, So that's an important point to make, but let's say you could could do that and think about that and and decide that it's a good idea to take down a fence in a particular context. Um, There's there's, uh, a lot of derelict fences. Fences are often erected, but they are quite difficult to maintain. And so there's a lot of fences out there that are kind of sitting, rotting, or rusting on the landscape. And so um, we've kind of continued to encourage a a plucky NGO or agency out there to to set up a program to start taking down some of these derelict fences that aren't serving any kind of economic function at the moment. And that would do a lot of good. But we also know that uh, this is kind of fascinating. Even when fences have been removed, their ghosts tend to linger on. And so uh, animals and ecosystems tend to kind of preserve the boundaries and impacts of those fences created even after the fences are removed and so that's just a piece of evidence to suggest that um, when possible, not constructing fences in the first place or having re- a really clear set of goals and aims uh, in doing so is, is kind of a key consideration.
0: The ghost fence phenomenon, is that a result of behavioral changes related to, you know, uh, memory and just the patterns that the the animals there have taken? Or are we talking about some sort of physical change on the landscape that persists even after you pull the fence itself?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a phenomenon that needs more research to really be able to answer that question in full, but it, it appears to be related to both of those things. Uh, animal, excuse me, animal memory and, um, the kind of physical changes that fences have created in the landscape that that continue to be uh, re- respected by by the animals living there.
0: And you know, one thing I was hoping we could touch on um, just really quickly, but the ubiquity of fences, the number of fences. You know, it it struck me in looking at, um, you know, one of your maps of fence density. And I had been last year hiking in an area that I thought was the middle of nowhere. Um, You know, it was out uh, out on, you know, remote, you know, BLM land and I assumed there was, you know, nothing, Human-made within miles of me, at least in a couple spots, but no, I was in a I was in a red zone where it was impossible to get a you know kilometer away from a fence. Apparently, um, there are quite a few fences. How big is the scope of that situation?
1: Yeah, it's it's really hard to say with specificity. Um, one of the challenges in studying fences is that unlike roads, um, we haven't really been able to marshal the advances in remote sensing and satellite imagery and all of these things to start detecting the global scope of fences like we have been able to do with roads and other pieces of infrastructure fences are simply a little bit hard to see from space Um, that being said there have been a few studies that have tried to measure the density and extent of fences and compare that to roads Uh, and in some cases where they've done so they've found that the length of fencing um, outstretches the length of roads by an order of magnitude. And if that were true across the world, then uh, we would start measuring the total length of fences in astronomical units because they would, if you stacked them end to end, would stretch to the sun and back multiple times. Um, so in all likelihood, fences could be uh, you know, the most prevalent form of human infrastructure in the world. Um, but again as you mentioned your anecdotes a great demonstration of this we really don't have a clear picture of how um, how that patterning looks in space uh, so one of the th- one of the things that we tried to do in our paper was take a look at the western US this place that you described is kind of famous for having a lot of areas that are, are pretty um, uh, low development or uh, seemingly remote and um, we tried to estimate the density of fencing throughout these areas. And what we found is that uh, a number of areas that are are supposedly really low in terms of their human footprint actually have pretty high densities of fencing. Um, And so in all likelihood, um, those are areas that are really rapidly changing or have undergone a large amount of ecological change that hasn't really been adequately picked up or addressed. Um, The last statistic I'll throw out there is, you know referencing a, a famous arachnologist from the 90s who said, you're never more than three feet from a spider. Um, so we, we tried to make that calculation for the US and, and found out you're basically never more than uh, three kilometers from a fence. So yeah, your anecdote is, is really true to our calculations.
0: That, that's, that's really, really interesting. Um, one question that I always ask is um, what I just think of as the climate change question. In this case, I'm imagining you know species that have to adjust their ranges in light of climate change. Is it, will fences make that more difficult or is that an obstacle?
1: Definitely. I
0: think we, we
1: know of all the things that we know really clearly about fences, it's, it's something about their impacts on animal movement. Um, And so we know that for species with really large range sizes who are likely to encounter fences very frequently, um, we know that they change their behavior around fences. Even fences that animals like deer can cross, they'll often take long detours to go around them. Um, When they do cross, there's a risk of injury or entanglement. Um, We've seen that a lot of ground nesting birds, you wouldn't think of a bird as being particularly impacted by fences. but. there's a lot of studies that show that ground nesting birds uh, actually have pretty high mortality rates from flying into fences. Um, so there's a lot of effects on animal movement that we can cite from the literature that would, uh, yeah, work in, in conjunction with climate change to have some pretty serious effects. But then there's also, a, you know, looking at bigger ecological scales, I think there's a lot of unknowns about how fences interact with with all of these other ecological processes and how those scale up um, and what those might mean. And that's that's the kind of research that we need going forward.
0: Absolutely, and we'll look forward to it. Um, I might ask, what's next for your research in particular? What are you looking at now or in the future? Yeah, yeah,
1: I'm, I'm one of these newfangled interdisciplinary scholars. So in this paper, I was kind of looking at how humans fit into ecology and, and now I'm kind of looking at the other side of the coin. So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, looking at some of the social conditions and and questions around the possible reintroduction of grizzly bears to California.
0: Oh, that's an interesting idea, and, and uh, sounds quite exciting. Uh, we'll look forward to it. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, James.